Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. How many elk do you want? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah seriously, that, that's, that's, I mean. I, I, I've gotten this question many times. My uh, state government employee politically correct answer is within the available habitat and within the uh, social acceptance, which is a nice way of saying as many as people will actually tolerate. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Graydon, and this is episode number 131, Elk Hunting in PA with Jeremy Banfield. Now, again, another special episode. We are live from Elk Expo 2022 here in Benazette, PA, specifically at the Keystone Elk Country Alliance Visitor Center. And while we're here, a bunch of things revolving around elk happen, and we got a special guest for this show. Jeremy Banfield is the elk biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. That's a position he's held since 2013, and he's going to fill us in on a bunch of different stuff about elk in Pennsylvania. He's going to talk about a little bit the current state of elk in PA, how tag allocations and the draw system works, where you can find elk in PA wilds, the elk management area, and then he's also going to fill us on things like how to be elk smart when you're interacting with these wild animals his career goals for the elk herd, and some common misconceptions around how elk are managed by the game commission. Let's listen in. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is uh, the second special episode you're gonna hear this weekend. Uh, live from the Elk Expo, so you might hear a little bit of murmur in the background. That's because we're doing it right from our booth uh, here, uh, right amongst all the other booths that we have. So uh, it's been a great day so far, and it's going to get even better for a person like me uh, who gets to interview Jeremy Banfield, Pennsylvania Game Commission elk biologist. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Good, Jason. That's a nice introduction. You're laughing. You probably don't feel like you're a celebrity, but to a person like me, you got a little bit of celebrity status. No, don't don't fluff it up anymore. <laughs> All right, well, you re- you ready for some real good fluff here? Because we have a second uh, sort of special guest host today that some people uh, may recognize if they've been listening for a while, and that's my father, Jeff. Yeah, and you can fluff me up. I'll take everything I get. I'll, I'll take what he doesn't want. So we're going to have a little bit of fun today, but we're mainly going to be talking about what else? Elk. Yep. Uh, we're at the Elk Expo. Uh, so, Jeremy, just real quick, give everyone a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, uh, so I am unfortunately not a Pennsylvania native. Sorry about that. And I did not go to Penn State either, so sorry about that. But I am originally from western New York, not far away, you know, just just over the border in, into New York, uh, Finger Lakes region. And um, 
went to Michigan State University for my undergrad and then University of Alberta actually for a master's. Worked in Montana for a little while and to everyone's shock, my wife absolutely hated Montana. So I ended up, <laughs> your face is making me laugh right now. Uh, I ended up looking for other positions, uh, came across this in 2013 and thought I will never get that, but I meet the minimum qualifications, so I'll apply. And now here I sit nine years later, you know, it's uh, probably have one of the best jobs in the game commission. Um, I know there's other biologists that think they have the best job, but it, it, it's, it really is a unique position. I enjoy it. It is not without challenges, but um, I'm happy to be here and uh, really love my job. So that face a little bit, uh, it would be, I feel like, a similar situation for my wife and I. Um, when I went to Montana with my father to elk hunt, I loved it. It was great out there. Um, my wife would, that, that's not for her, right? That, that style of living is not for her. Uh, so she would be making us move back as well yeah. um, which I, which I, quite honestly I, I would say yes anyways uh, the only way I could get her to, to move anywhere else um, and that I'd be comfortable is to pick up literally both of our families we're all moving together yep. you know doing the big uh, caravan like back in the day out Oregon Trail I guess to yeah. uh, to go places anyway, I like Pennsylvania a lot yeah I digress yeah. let's get back to Pennsylvania let's get back to elk um, so you've been here nine years there's obviously been some changes, right, that have happened in that nine years with the elk herd. Something has, something has changed, right? It's been nine yeah, years. You've something accomplished something, happened. right? Like right. that's your question. <laughs> yeah. So you know, like, w what are the changes you've seen over the nine years as being the elk biologist? Um, that is a, a, a broad baited question. question. Um, okay. There has been subtle population growth for sure over the past nine years. That's probably one of the biggest things to point to. When I first started, we were doing a minimum count, so uh, basically a ground-based survey where we're, we're driving around and counting the animals that we encounter along the way. Um, three years ago, we switched to an aerial-based survey, and that uh, really changed the way that we estimate our elk population. Current population is somewhere between 1,300 and 1,400 animals. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't put an exact number on it. Obviously, I'm a biologist. Wait, we what, we what estimate. You, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Everyone's listening is like, no, Game Christian, they, they should yeah, count every all. single yeah, yeah, elk, yeah. right? Uh, no. Uh, it's impossible, right? You cannot, there's no, it's not a census. It's it's an estimate. Um, we can't mail out, you know, letters and be like, oh, how many people live in your food plot or whatever. Uh, so it's, it, it is an estimate. It's, it's from the air, though. We use a, a fixed-wing aircraft, double-prop plane. And then the cool part about it is that from the belly of the plane is a very sophisticated camera. So... High definition and infrared, infrared sees peat. And so most of their stuff occurs at night. They do it during the winter months when the foliage is off and um, they're flying along, looking at hot spots. They zoom in, they make the call whether it's deer or elk. If it's elk, they'll peel off their, you know, their, their line and they'll circle and get really good footage of those animals. And all of that comes back and translates into our, our population estimate. So this past year, for example, was 1,304. It was the estimate. Again, there's not 1,304 elk. There is somewhere between thirteen and fourteen hundred animals in our in our population. So, currently. are you in the plane? No, not all the time. Um, so, uh, one person flying, obviously. Good, <laughs> uh, good, good call. Yeah, that's your first good call right? when yeah, you got here. Uh, and then there's a camera operator in the back. There is one passenger seat next to the camera operator. I have flown with them. I did many times so that I kind of understood what they were doing. But no, I don't need to be there necessarily because of the camera. Uh, yeah, it's all being recorded. I look at it afterward. 
and uh, they do it at night, so it's not like there's a whole lot to see. You're literally watching a screen the whole time for you know it's a four-hour flight, and you're watching a screen for four hours and, and watching somebody push buttons. I mean, it's super entertaining, but after you go a few times, you're just like, yeah, you guys got this. Now, when you're using that number of 1,300, 1,400, that's statewide? Yes, that's so the entire population. Now, do you break that down further for your zones and use that information for your tags? Yep, correct. So um, the number of tags that we issue per zone is based on two things. First, population, like you're alluding to, and it's that 1,300, 1,400 broken into each specific hunt zone. And then uh, the second part of that is uh, human-elk conflict or... You know, elk getting into trouble with agriculture or uh, vehicle collisions, you know, things like that. In areas where we have issues and, and conflicts with elk, we try and put additional tags there to reduce those populations. Um, likewise, in other areas where there is no, you know, lots of public land and there's no real conflicts, we try and allow those populations to grow. Uh, and then, so again, the, the starting point is the population, and then we use that conflict piece as a, as a secondary. And, and that's ultimately what goes into the annual tag allocation. Tags were just drawn. Yes. My name wasn't drawn. No. Mine wasn't either. His name Mine wasn't drawn. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll try again. We thought maybe we could have like this real happy uh, <laughs> podcast, which is still happy, but it's not. Would we even be doing this if you got drawn? Um, yes, because <laughs> I, would, I want I everyone break. to know I would uh, how excited I am. Um, Every year, I, when we first started doing this, maybe I don't know, six years ago or so. I would have said there is no chance that anybody is actually going to be here, right? We have 50-some thousand people that put in for 178 tags. What are the odds out of, I don't know, three or 400 people that are here, you know, what are the odds that any one of them is going to be there? Every year we've had at least one person present, and they make it known, and we, we ask them to make it known. Like, if mm -hmm. we draw your name and you're here, you better make some noise. Right. And that just happened here. So somebody Very was good. present. They they called it out. And then after we finished up, another guy came over, and he's like, hey, man, I was the third person you drew. I was like, why didn't you say anything? And he's like, I just it took a minute for it to sink in. Yeah. And, I, it, yeah, and by I, that time, we had moved on. So. Yeah, I feel like I would be in shock, Yeah, uh, quite honestly, um, if you said my name. You, you well. threw out a, real quick in passing. You said 178 tags. Was that the number you drew today? Yes. Okay. Yep. That's yep. So and that's split across the three seasons. For people that are listening, maybe yep. don't understand. Okay. So 178 tags split across the three seasons: archery last two weeks of September, general first part of November, like the first full week of November, and then the late season is the first part of January next year, 2023. Okay. And uh, 60 bulls, 118 cows. Okay. So you know. We talked a little bit before we started recording about just how nice the bulls are um, here in Pennsylvania. A lot of people don't think about Pennsylvania and, and elk hunting going hand in hand, but it is now, uh, you know, a reality. That's basically proof that what we're doing to manage between the Game Commission, Kika, PA Wilds, like everyone that's involved in trying to, help, you know, conserve elk in Pennsylvania things steps that are being taken are working would you say yeah yeah i agree um and, and i am not i can't take credit for any of that i inherited the system that we have right so we had a ton of monster bulls when i came here and i'm just kind of carrying on that legacy uh three things what are the three things that go into antler development age yep nutrition yep who will be the third one genetics genetics so mm -hmm. age and nutrition are are the prerequisites for genetics, right? Genetics will mm -hmm. never supersede 
uh, age or being healthy. You can, you can, if you're young and in a good condition, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of genetics you have, you're too young. You've got to have those other two to unlock genetic potential. The point of the story is we are pretty restrictive on our bull harvest. So I just said we have a population of 13, 1400 animals, roughly 35%, maybe 40% of those are bulls and we take 60 per year. So, you know, we are pretty light on our, um, on our bull harvest. That allows the animals to get to a mature age class and really, you know, display or, or, or maximize that antler potential. So whitetails peak out at five and a half, six and a half, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range. Elk is, is uh, just pushed back a little bit. So it's like eight, nine, ten would be okay. their, their peak years. Average age of an elk taken in Pennsylvania is six and a half. Um, usually by the time they're six and a half, they're, you know, a nice six by six, not a raghorn, but, you know, a really good, nice six by six. Uh, and then again, those those eight, nine, ten year olds are going to be the the ones that are in the four hundred, you know, three eighty to four hundred class bull. So um, age class is the main one that goes into our big bulls, and our habitat is there as well. Uh, you know, the Game Commission, in partner with Conservation or Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, our sister agency, we do a lot of habitat work on the ground in providing um, grassland type habitat that elk maximize and and uh, use is a lot more than browsed um, but in general you know it's it's the age class and then habitat that's going to make our big bulls right and you i was going to ask a question i think you partially answered it being that those are only three uh, criteria they're producing a good bull really you only have control over the habitat uh, age with your restriction but other yep. that's about the only thing you can do there with and you covered a little bit what do you do what what are you guys are doing for the habitat? What are you doing around here to keep these and, and moving them to the areas you want them in? Yeah, um, and we we just barely touched on this. Elk are going to be primarily a grazing species, right? They if there's grass available or grasslands available, that's what they're they're going to be after. That's not to say they won't browse. They will browse, especially during the winter months. Um, same with with deer. Deer are going to be primarily a browsing species, but they will graze as well. So like they they flip flop back and forth. Um, depending on the season and things but for the most part elk want grass and um, Pennsylvania wants to be mature timber it wants to be mature trees correct so the biggest component of our habitat management is just setting back that successional process right making sure that an open grassland field stays a grassland if you if you don't manage it you don't do something to set that successional process back over time it becomes shrubs shrubs become young forest young forest becomes old forest it takes 40 years to do that but it's still you know our our job is just to either burn it you know every three to five years um uh, mow it or potentially every it depends on the circumstances but but in certain circumstances every fourth year or so we'll we'll till something up and then replant it with something so um basically yeah we're just trying to prevent that successional process and keep young uh, early successional grassland habitat intact and available for elk. That was a really long answer to your no, no, that was, question. <laughs> these, but I guess why I ask these questions, I mean, some of, some of it I, I know is because of dealing with, with Jason and stuff, but the, uh, a lot of our audience in, in Pennsylvania is strictly whitetail. Yeah. And if you haven't had a lot of the, the idea that the, the browse versus the graze, yep. you don't think about that. You see, you see an elk, it looks enough like a whitetail, you think that same habitat works for them. It's not necessarily that, that yeah, way. i got to be careful saying this, but they, they are arguably closer to cattle than they are deer. Right. I mean, they are a big deer for right. sure, but they, they, 
they're a ruminant. You know, they they depend on that um, grassland component. So, I mean, there are we have the zones right for the elk hunt, um, and you mentioned elk-human conflict and interaction. I mean, there's areas where you really don't necessarily want elk to go, right? Because the whole state isn't adaptable for elk. Like, elk can't live in downtown Philadelphia or yeah. Harrisburg or Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, so that sort of is part of what goes into tags that are allotted for certain areas. Yeah. Um, so we didn't talk about the elk management area. And uh, you might hear us say EMA occasionally, but elk management area would be the designated area, you know, geographically bounded part of Pennsylvania where we want to see elk stay. Those those hunt zones that we were talking about, 14 hunt zones fall within the elk management area and carve it up. But um, basically, for the hunters, it's 2H and 2G. There's a little bit of a boundary disparity between uh, 2G and the actual elk management area. But for the most part, the simplest thing to, to say is that it's, it's 2H and 2G, you know, north central part of the state. And the reason for that, and you, you, you kind of hinted at this as well, is that that part of the state is greater than 70% public land. So lots of state forests, lots of state game lands, you know, lots of public land that uh, keep those animals out of trouble and also, you know, create the opportunity for them to be hunted, which is good. Um, we get lots of questions about, you know, do we want to see elk in other part of the states or why can't we have elk in other part of the state? Uh, the biggest one is that, that conflict aspect. It is one thing to have five little floppy-eared whitetails in your cornfield. It is something totally different to have five bull elk in your cornfield. I mean, just their their sheer size is tremendously destructive, and they eat a lot. It's it's one thing to, to hit a deer on the road, something totally different to hit an elk on the road. So everything, every species has some form of, of you know human-wildlife conflict. Squirrels get into people's bird feeders and make them angry. Um, it just tends to be amplified with elk because they're so big, right? And their nutritional demands are, are high. So we have an elk management area, and that's where we'd like to see elk stay. What what happens if an elk goes outside of that area? Currently nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it enjoys it. So okay. there is no written protocol that says when an elk leaves the elk management area, we, we have, you know, we respond in X, Y, or Z. Uh, it has happened on occasion where they leave the elk management area. They'll, they'll, one will drop south of Interstate 80, for example, and they'll go into a disease management area. And that would be the areas that uh, we uh, designate around CWD positive deer, um, where we're, we're, you know, we're putting in additional regulations to try and prevent the spread of disease. So if a elk goes into a disease management area outside the elk management area, and then ends up returning to the elk management area. And we know this happens because we've had a few collars on animals where this has happened. Um, if we know it for a fact where they've left, potentially been exposed to CWD, and then they come back, we do have to euthanize those animals as a, a safety risk to the rest of the yeah, population. That, yeah, that's just to protect the, the rest of the herd. Yeah, it's pretty black and white. Um, I know that's not like the nicest or, or easiest thing to say, but under the circumstances, that, that decision is made very quickly for us because the risk of them bringing CWD back is, is just too strong. So what you're saying is, you know, we do some hunting in 2F. If we would see an elk in 2F, it's not open season on that elk, right? Like, it's not a, they're beyond the barrier, the, the boundary, anyone can just go and shoot that elk. Not yet. Um, next year, hopefully, so th there has been talk of this for many years, 
trying to get it in place, but next year we're hoping to have a season outside the EMA, outside the elk management area, to, um, again, to alleviate concerns about CWD. Uh, so if we have animals, you know, venturing into areas that, that are known to have CWD on the landscape in, in the form of positive deer, that uh, we have a system in place where we can basically have the hunters remove those animals, you know, for us. Uh, and, and then they benefit from that because they get to keep the animals. So we're, we're hoping to have a season outside the elk management area. I, I got to be cautious about saying when it is, you know, maybe 2023, maybe 2024. But essentially it would be uh, your tag is good for any unit except 2H and 2G. And um, either sex tag, if it's deer season, it's elk season. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, very much. You dabbled into the CWD and what we were doing if they come into there. What can you suggest to people to, to try to eliminate? What can, a, what can a normal person do to help eliminate, the, or not eliminate, but reduce the risk of CWD in the elk population? Yep. Uh, chronic waste and disease is, is uh, unfortunately, is something we have in our wild deer population. We test nearly, we test 99% of our hunter harvested animals. Every year there's like one or two that that don't make it uh, back through to get tested. But uh, for the most part, we test all the hunter harvested animals. Any animal that's been dead less than three days, we'll try and get a sample out of that. So they've all been negative or not detected so far. So everything that I can say at the moment is we do not have elk, or excuse me, we do not have CWD in our elk population. Um, hopefully that day doesn't come anytime soon. You know, I hope it's not even in my career. Um, I cannot predict when it's going to be. Two things would be, two, two main things that people can do to help is one, don't feed wildlife. I know it's tempting, uh, it's, everybody's always well-meaning when they do that, but all it does is put the animals nose to nose with each other and, and that spreads disease. If you think about COVID or you know, what happens on a cruise ship, what happens on, when somebody gets COVID on a cruise ship, like, it just spreads like wildfire and, and we're really trying to prevent that. So not supplemental feeding, artificial feeding, um, you know, helps keep the animals naturally spaced out the way that they would be on their own, and you're not artificially congregating them into small spaces and helping spread that disease. So that would be a big one. Um, and then second one would be just density reductions, and, and nobody wants to hear that. But in areas that we have CWD established, um, typically we offer additional tags, and that's just trying to reduce the number of animals out there to reduce that conflict, or excuse me, contact, not conflict, contact between them to prevent the spread or slow the spread. So, I, Pennsylvania has a complicated history with elk because they were here, the eastern elk, right? Mm -hmm. It's gone extinct. Um, elk were brought in, back into Pennsylvania. Uh, there was an open hunting season. Eventually that got closed. Elk herd sort of returned back to better numbers. Elk season came back in. Uh, is there, I mean, is there like a magic number for the amount of elk to where we would say like that's it no more elk hunting again i mean hopefully we would never get to that point right like that's the reason for a small number of tags yeah i mean i don't know i hope we would never close the season again i mean things would have to be really bad to have that happen um we we would notice it well before we got to that point so and, and you know, there would if, be a uh, reduction in tags correct, at that yes point. if a population a strong population decline came through for disease reasons or reproductive issues or something like that you know we would we would notice it on our in our annual survey 
and then respond accordingly with the tag allocation. Um, so we, it, all of the, the monitoring systems in place should be sensitive enough to pick up on that and then prevent anything like that from happening. So the population this year estimated, you know, 13 to 1400. Uh, what do you think the peak is? Like, what's the peak number that we could possibly have? <laughs> How many elk do you want? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah seriously. That, that's, that's, I mean. I, I, I've gotten this question many times. My uh, state government employee politically correct answer is within the available habitat and within the uh, social acceptance, which is a nice way of saying as many as people will actually tolerate. So, um uh, how do I say this tactfully? There is a difference between people that um, live here with the elk, mm-hmm. right, and and tolerate a lot of those things that I was talking about earlier, and everybody else that comes in and gets to see them and enjoy them and, and you know, not have any kind of the negative side effects of that. So uh, that just adds a, a, a different dynamic to... Um, the social part of it, right? Mm-hmm. There, there is a, a limit to what people will tolerate in terms of elk numbers, and um, it's usually lower than what the the habitat and the, the landscape can actually support. So, um, yeah, there is no magic number. It's what people will, will tolerate and what the landscape can support, but, again, one of those is usually lower than the other. All that said, you know, my truthful answer is, like, if I could double or you know if we were somewhere in the 2,000 to 2,500 range and we were taking 300 a year and I have a roughly 23 years to go um, I'd be proud of that right you know that that would be a cool accomplishment I'd I'd be proud of that to to get our population up to that point totally habitat dependent I mean if there's one thing that will drive population growth Mm -hmm. it's additional habitat additional herbaceous uh, grassland you know type type environment in mentioning that I was coming up here on the last couple of weeks, I ran into two different people that have property camps in Medix Run, Penazet area. Both of them surprisingly told me as soon as they heard that that they do not come to camp in the month of September because of the tourists and the looking and the maybe just to give you a platform to say, I guess, the political correct way of. of the people that are coming, we want them to come and enjoy looking at these elk, but what are some of the things that they shouldn't do so that we can maybe get the population that lives here to, to not be so angry that we're coming up and look at their beautiful elk? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So um, Pennsylvania elk are unique in that we have two distinct kind of user groups, right? We have all those people that are interested in hunting elk, and then we have a very large portion of people that are interested in elk watching or elk viewing or elk culture, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, most of that happens during September and October. Most of that happens in the Benazet area. Benazet is a town of roughly 100 people, okay, full-time residents. So there's a traffic counter out here on the driveway at the visitor center, and they estimate about 500,000 people come through here on an annual basis. When you get 500,000 people, half a million people coming through a town of 100, you know, it, it, the infrastructure just can't support that, and it tends to cause conflicts, right? That, it, it shouldn't be surprising. Um, the best thing that we can steer people toward in that sense is our Elk Smart program. So our Elk Smart program was developed specifically for that, trying to just trying to make people recognize that, you know, when you come up here, 
how you behave and what you do, it matters. It does make a difference. It's easy to brush it off and say, I'm just one person, but you're not because everybody says that. And, you know, when there's 500,000 people doing that, it, it certainly has an effect. So Elk Smart program is um, four points. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, and the first point is uh, uh, give the animals space, right? So we always say that elk, uh, you have a bubble, your personal space. Elk also have a bubble. It's a lot bigger. And uh, we, we always ask that everybody keep 100 yards from them. Second one is don't feed. We already talked about that and the dangers of feeding. I should have said this too. It's also illegal or unlawful to feed elk uh, as well as bear in the state of Pennsylvania. Third one is we ask that people don't name the animals, and we always get a little bit of a like raised eyebrow or question mark, like, why can't I name them? What harm does that cause? It doesn't cause any direct harm to the animal. The issue there is that um, they are not pets, okay? We name our pets. Um, they're, they're valued members of our family, arguably valued members of our, like, more valued members of our family than our human family <laughs> under some Sometimes. circumstances Sometimes. yeah so we name our pets we, we shouldn't be naming elk they're not pets they are wild animals when you attach a human characteristic aka a name to a wild animal you you kind of rob some of that that natural wildness that's about them right the reason that we're fascinated and drawn to them is because they're wild they're independent from us so when we name an animal we take a little bit of that away and it just degrades that so uh and the second part of that is this is a hunted population invariably every time what happens is a large bull will get a, a, a hashtag or a name and then hunting season rolls around somebody takes that animal and it just causes needless conflicts between those groups yes yeah, so right. simple answer there is don't don't name them and then i'm sorry i'm, just, I'm being long-winded last oh, no. point is uh, uh do your part or or you know this program cannot be like the game commission can't police all this it's got to come from a grassroots level so everybody's got to do their part in um, being elk smart to, to make that program a, a success so those that's i mean elk smart was developed specifically to try and address that that little bit of a uh, imbalance between the number of visitors coming to this area and the number of people that, that have to live here and, and tolerate that every year yeah as a uh, september tourist I, I brought my wife up here a couple years yeah, ago it's super cool yeah, uh, yeah it was great awesome. we got to hear elk bugling colors sometimes change late september colors yep colors started to change we got to see a couple bulls and a couple cows like it was great i i like to pride myself on having what i feel is common sense knowledge about how to interact with wildlife because i've grown up in the outdoors i'm a lifelong hunter Uh, i got aggravated at seeing how some of the other people stop in the middle of the road because yeah. they see an elk on the side of the road yeah. or you know the elks the one in particular a very nice bull just down over the road not far from the visitor center here and people are parked all over the place and they're trying to send their kids down the hill to get closer pictures with the bulls and it's like not, these, a, not a petting zoo no yeah, this please isn't give them space yes like, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing and that's as a as a tourist right i can only imagine if i lived here you mentioned the infrastructure hard to handle this is an area that it would be hard to build the infrastructure needed for half a million people to come through a year yeah because of the ridges and the valleys and the rivers and just everything that's going on here so you got to be nice to the people here right you know and then while you're here you got to be nice to the elk you got to do what's going to be best for them absolutely and um one other thing to throw out there is like remember during the rut they are the, the bulls are surging with testosterone it increases almost like tenfold. I mean, they, they go from very low testosterone to 
insane amounts and all that does is make them want to breed every cow out there and kill every other bull out there so if there ever was a situation where uh, there's a bull with his harem and like people got between the bull and the cows or, or just any number of things that could go wrong there somebody's gonna get hurt and God forbid somebody's kids get hurt or something you know I just I I can't believe it hasn't happened yet and and eventually it, it's going to happen um, and we're just trying to do everything we can to, to proactively prevent that through our ElkSmart program through you know things like this educational opportunities um, because it, it, it's dangerous. People don't get that, but it really is. I mean, they are wild animals, and their behavior can be unpredictable, particularly during the rut when they're full of testosterone. Yeah, it, it's it's real life. It's not a Disney movie. Right, 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 right. right? Uh, the birds aren't going to start singing with me, <laughs> and the elk's not going to nuzzle its neck. You nope. know, it, He's going to bull you over, thrash you, and walk away without a care in the world. Without going down too much of a technical uh, rabbit hole, again, being mostly white-tailed, people around here is it, you talked about the rut is there any substantial differences between elk rut and whitetail rut uh time of year lane things like that yeah um so the timing is is probably the, the most stark difference um and it's related to gestation period so uh all of the young of the year for just about any deer species is born what late may early june somewhere in that range you know so deer in there elk are in there moose are in there um, but what's funny is they're, the bigger the animal gets, the bigger the deer species gets, the earlier the rut. So moose rut is in like August because they have such a long gestation period, but they still drop their young of the year around that same time. Elk comes next, you know, late September, third week of September, somewhere in that range. And then whitetails is a little bit later because their gestation period is, is shorter. So um, certainly the chemistry the- and physiology in the animals is similar, right? Testosterone increases and they get aggressive and, and uh, interested in does so, yes <laughs> yes um as well and uh it's the same thing in elk it's just again the, the timing of year is different based on the gestational period and and how the animals evolve well and the behavior is a little different too right because with the white-tailed deer um they're searching out one doe Correct. in estrus. not a harem breeder yes. yeah they're, they're searching out that one doe in estrus court her until he's able to do his breeding and then he moves on to the next one right with elk that bull is as you mentioned trying to develop a harem a group of cows yes. to to try to breed all of those cows and keep them together yes and they will actively defend that harem um it's not super clean i mean there's a lot of fluidity and a lot of like movement between um harems and and, and if you ever come up here you'll see it you know i mean a bull's got 20 cows and then five minutes goes by and and one of them slips away and now he's down to you know 19 or something so there is fluidity there but uh, they will definitely defend it against other bulls coming in and trying to to take over and and that's where you get some really neat action yeah well and that's where the bugling comes from too right they're trying to attract more cows to them yep we would say that it's two parts the first is is a, a an advertisement right so they are trying to attract cows and be like look i'm i'm big and bad ready to breed and then the other part is also it's a it's a warning. I'm, I'm here. This is my space. Stay away. Okay. To other bulls. Right, right. And if not, like you said, that's when you get the good action. Yes. You know, the, those really cool pictures of them fighting and videos of them fighting. Yep. Uh, one of the my favorite things every year, and I'm really hoping it's coming back this year, is the elk camp. We're going to have that again this it's year? It's on right now? Yep. Yeah. I. So, funny story for everyone. Real quick. Just super quick story. Um, I was watching it at work. I used to have a plan period at work and 
uh, at the beginning of the day. So I was watching it in the morning, and which was cool because I got to see some elk, you know, going around when in the morning that kind of stuff. So after this playing period's over, I have class. Right, I have a class come in, and I just unthinkingly just minimized the window instead of closing it out. My speakers were still on. I'm trying to teach these kids, and I'm hearing something. I'm like, what is that? What is that? Finally, after 15 minutes, I realized elk camp's still on, and elk is bugling <laughs> in the <laughs> was background like, was it crickets of me trying or to what teach. Was it that, I'm yeah. like, oh, man. Okay. No, we figured There's that people out. that get, I mean, super into that, and they supposedly have it on all night long, listening to the crickets go all night long. I mean, the audio is impressive. You can, if they're close enough to it, you can hear them ripping the vegetation from the ground. It's 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 uh, pretty cool. Yeah, so. it is, it's a cool, for people that can't get here, maybe you live out of state, um, maybe you just, you're too busy. You can't get out here to see the elk. It's just a, a great way to still sort of take part in doing a little bit of that elk watching uh, up here around the visitor center, you know, yeah. where the elk tend to be. Yep. And, and one quick tip there, you know, elk are crepuscular, so they are active at dawn and dusk. They're not nocturnal. They're not diurnal. They're crepuscular. So, you know, two hours after sunrise to two hours before sunset would be the most active periods. Th- that camera does have an infrared, uh, light on it so you can see a lot of nighttime activity as well but you know middle of the day when it's 90 degrees they're they're not going to be real active i love having wildlife biologists on that use big words <laughs> populous <laughs> not nocturnal i love that yeah, my vocabulary definitely expands yes. on these podcasts yes. i've learned a lot we usually get ridiculed for that talk like a fifth grader don't <laughs> don't use big words no no we're trying so, to teach we're trying to educate okay, we sorry. need to learn these right, words so just to be to, to, to reiterate you're you're saying in the morning and the evening Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank, thank you. There we go. I have remind me again at the end before we're done. I'll give you one more word. One okay. more good oh, word. good. Well, okay. I'll, I'll write it down and use it three times. <laughs> so, Jeremy, what else do we need to know about elk? And what else do we need to know, to know about elk hunting, the tag system? What, what have we missed? Um, okay. Misconceptions that I hear repeatedly are, uh, um, well, let me start with this. There are three separate seasons. We talked about that. Archery general late. Each season is its own silo, its own season. So each season has its own unique applicant pool, its own drawing, its own bonus point structure. Those, if you put in for archery, you are not in for the other seasons. Your bonus points don't count for those other seasons. Like they're each their own silo. Um, you can put in for one, two, or all three seasons. Uh, you get dinged for the $12 fee every time. So. Um, it is $12 to put in. That's not expensive. I get people complaining about that too, and I'm just like, are you serious? Like, dude, I could dig around in my car and find, or maybe my wife's car. I could dig around in my wife's car and certainly better, find. Go to McDonald's and yeah, order a meal. It's going to yeah, be more than yes, $12 yes. these like, days. Don't tell me that Pennsylvania elk hunting is expensive. It's not. Um, a tag is $25 for a resident and $250 for a non-resident. Like, please. So, um, again, those seasons are separate. The bonus point system is a bonus point. It is, it is a multiplier. For as many bonus points as you have, your name gets in the hat that many times. If I have four bonus points, my name goes in the hat four times. It effectively bumps the probability that I'm going to draw. For every year you put in and you don't draw a tag, you gain one bonus point. So like this year, 2022, uh, the max you could have had would have been four bonus points for archery, 20 bonus points for the general season. That one's been around for a while. And then four bonus points for the late season as well. That's, that's like if you put in every year for every single season. Um, and again, that effectively bumps the probability that you're going to draw. So it's not a preference point system. Preference point system is like, you know, I hit five points and I'm guaranteed a tag or something like that. Other, other Western states have a system like that. That's not ours. We're bonus point. 
Um, and then the last thing that I'll throw out there is there's also a misconception that you have to hire a guide. You know, oh, you gotta hire a guide, you know, Game Commission does this or does that, tells you which bull to shoot. We don't do any of that. I mean, like, we cannot tell you that you have to hire a guide. That's a personal decision, right? So if you wanna hire a guide, hire a guide. It's a private, that's a contract between you and a private entity. Um, we have nothing to do with that. The Game Commission has nothing to do with that. Um, it's up to you whether you want to hire a guide or not. So they're, they're optional. It's, it's your choice. I'll, I'll throw one more out there to, for you to address. Are the tags transferable? In other words, you pull my name. Can I transfer them to a, my son? No. Um, and, and I've heard that. That's why I wanted you to. Right. No. Uh, if for some, Okay. There is, we talked about the drawing. You know, you can put in for one, two, or all three seasons. You can buy just your point. So if you knew for a fact you're going out to Colorado or something during the archery season here and you don't want to risk you know, having to choose between the two states if you get drawn, just buy the point, okay? Like we'll gladly take your $12 and just give you the point and then you're not actually in the drawing here. So if you knew for some reason that you weren't going to be available to hunt in PA during that season, you can just buy the point. Um, what was the second part of your question? Well, just that it was, it's, they're not transferable from yes, hunter sorry, to hunter. Yeah. And yes, you cannot... You cannot give them away, um, so if you can't hunt, it's unfortunately, yeah, you can't you can't give it away or sell it or anything like that. Now, have you? I don't suppose you've had that happen too many times where people don't show up that have a tag, what, or do you have to factor that in the number of tags that you do have some no shows? Once every three years or so, it's like we have one person or something that doesn't buy their light. Like midway between now and when the season starts. We usually do a sweep and we see who hasn't bought their license yet. And then we, we follow up with them and be like, do you know that you were drawn and you were eligible to buy a license? And usually by that time, everybody does. But um, again, once every third year or so, there's somebody that just um, doesn't doesn't buy their license. And they're aware that they pulled the tag. You know, their health conditions can't can't afford them or, or um, something like that. And you guys don't do like a redraw, right? Like that's just one less animal that, that can be taken Correct. out there. One thing that I think we haven't hit is, what's the success rate for hunters in PA? Uh, it's, it's very high for bulls. It's like 95% for bulls. Almost all your bull hunters go guided. Um, unless they're from the local area, it seems like just about everybody hires, hires a guide that is a local person. Uh, cows is extremely variable. It, it averages around 70%. It's been as low as 60. It's been as high as 80. Um, but it's, it's much more variable. Even 60% is a, a pretty good success rate when you compare that to like whitetails or bear or something. Yeah. But um, it, it really depends on the weather and uh, just a number of different factors that you can't really control. But re regardless, it's, it's a, a function of, you know, just putting your time in if you're not going to hire a guide or hire a guide. Yeah. I mean, it's hunting. Right. At the right. end of the day, it's hunting. All right, Jeremy, I appreciate you coming, spending some time here on this busy day for you. You know, I mean, this is sort of your big thing. Thank you um, for the opportunity. You're pulled a lot of directions here, so thank you and for sitting down. To the, and to that point, it's, he's being pulled from us to go judge the elk calling contests. Yeah. So <laughs> we, I, I didn't know that's another expertise that we didn't add at the introduction. I wanted to make sure people knew that yeah, you're an expert elk caller judge. Yes, I don't put it into the contest myself, but I can hear it and and. That Judge sounds like who, an uh, elk. Yeah, that <laughs> sounds, sounds like, an elk. like an elk. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard that before. Yeah. So, so uh, Jeremy, as a as a hunter, I, I, real quick, I want to thank you for what you do here and, and why I say that. We we talked on the way up. When and if hopefully I draw a tag, I think one of my thoughts is in the woods is going to be I'm doing something in Pennsylvania that was done 
100, 150 years ago on a regular basis. To have the opportunity to do it again, I think we're blessed, and it's people like you and the commissioner, it's led us in the right direction, so thank you. That was very kind, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And that'll do it for another episode. Thank you to for all of you for listening. Uh, big thanks to Jeremy for coming on and talking to us. And then another big thanks to my father for sitting in on the interview. That was uh, a fun experience to be able to talk to Jeremy, uh, have some of our questions answered, have some common uh, questions and misconceptions answered as well. Uh, it's great to hear that the elk herd is in such a sustainable level that we're able to you know, really hunt them effectively. Uh, and really, at this point, we're just sort of managing almost social impacts, uh, you know, how the, how the elk are. That's always great news whenever, you know, a population is doing so well. Uh, and, you know, the elk smart stuff, you know, it, it seems very common sense to some of us. But for other people, it's not always. So uh, it's another great program put together uh, with the Game Commission and Kika and, and everyone involved to really make sure that not only are the people safe around the elk, but also the elk are safe around the people as well. Now, one thing, because Jeremy had to, to hurry off to the elk calling competition, which is going on right now, uh, we did have a little bit of a teaser there about one more big word, uh, but um, we didn't actually, you know, we didn't actually say it, so I'm going to give it to you right now. Uh, vestigial, a vestigial, which uh, I had heard before, but I couldn't really remember what it meant. Uh, basically, it means you know something that you no longer need due to evolution. Uh, and elk actually have a vestigial canine uh, teeth, uh, which are commonly referred to as their ivory. They actually used to be sort of like tusks, and they don't have they you know they've shrunk, and it's a vestigial you know, piece of anatomy for them that they don't really use anymore, uh, which made me think about that there's been a couple deer shot, uh, specifically down in the, the southeast um, here over the last couple years that have had very similar vestigial canines uh, or, or even some black markings and some things like that. Uh, it's just crazy to see how these wild animals can just evolve over time and, and really adapt themselves so much easier than we humans can seem to adapt ourselves. Make sure you check back tomorrow as we have another great episode coming out tomorrow, uh, Sunday, August 21st. If you haven't made it up here to Benazette uh, here today, make sure that you stop up tomorrow, 8 to 4, or I'm sorry, 8 to 5 here at the Visitor Center. It's a great time. There's a lot of great food, a lot of great vendors up here, and just great camaraderie as well. Until you hear me next time, get outside, take someone with you, and always stay wild.